once a case is getting cold, working with sources, informants, is less promising. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And I'm Janet Anderson. And today we have a central figure in international justice, currently the prosecutor of the United Nations International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals, which we try to remember is the IRMC something, um, but we'll probably also refer to as its specific title as just the mechanism. It's Serge Bramitz. Hi, Serge. Good morning. Serge has a long career in international justice. He was deputy prosecutor at the International Criminal Court from 2003, and then he moved a couple of kilometers in The Hague to replace Carla Del Ponte as the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia in 2007. And as that got ready to close in 2016, he also took over from Hassan Jallo and became the prosecutor for the successor institution of the... The mechanism. The mechanism, exactly, which is meant to deal with cases that are residual both from the Yugoslav and the Rwanda tribunals. And today we're going to focus specifically on the Rwanda tribunal and on fugitives. And instead of the usual Stephopedia, uh, where we ask Stephanie to give all the background, maybe we can have you, Serge, to don't tell us the history of the Rwanda tribunal. That's not it. But when you took over, how many cases of fugitives did you inherit? You know, what, Who was on your books in 2016? Yes, again, good, good morning and thanks for, for having me. Indeed, when I took over in 16, there were still eight, eight fugitives. You know, the question of the tracking of fugitives has always been central for the Yugoslav Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal. And I think those are, in fact, the only international tribunals which had, almost since the beginning, dedicated tracking teams actively looking for the remaining fugitives. So when we closed the, the ICTY, we were in this fortunate situation that there was no fugitive. Yeah, lucky you had kind of clean slate there, didn't you? Somehow, after the arrests in 2008 and 2011 of Karadzic and Mladic. So when I took over the mechanism, also with a specific focus on the remaining fugitives of the Rwanda genocide, we, we tried to implement some of the methodologies we were, which were more and more successful in the former Yugoslavia. So when I took over... We looked at the eight fugitives and started to determine some priorities. I looked at the working methodology. I looked at the composition of the tracking team. And I made a number of important changes. And so when, when you're talking about these very mechanics, what did you find and what specifically did you change? Did you hire more people? Did you start doing it in a different way? You know, the ad hoc tribunal, the tribunal for, for Rwanda, started in the, the mid-90s, right? At that time the methodology you would use to track fugitives is very different from what we consider being appropriate nowadays. So traditionally, you work very much with sources, with informants, with members of the criminal organization or the military structure, which was directly linked to the, to the fugitive. This works normally quite well in the first years after a conflict when you still can follow the movements. But once a case is getting cold, working with sources, informants, is less promising. So when I, when I took over, I understood that the system used was still mainly working with sources and informants. There were several dozens of individuals who were providing leads and information in relation to the fugitives. But were they not 
providing real information or was it not the right information or that that's always difficult to say because there were at that time financial incentives for information there's of course the large us reward program of of 5 uh, 5 million and um i looked during several months at the working methods and you know if you are receiving information about kabuga or empirania uh, where he has allegedly been seen the same week in in gabon and in mozambique uh and and perhaps in in a in a plane to to egypt well then you you know that something is wrong with the the system so we we made a fundamental restructuring of the tracking team uh, basically we replaced the members of the tracking team and to put more emphasis on analysis because once you have a a cold case if i may say once you have no idea where a fugitive has been for the last 10 15 years first you have to identify the persons of interests who are the persons you think today are still in in contact with the fugitive then you have to look around them you have to do financial investigations you have to do open source investigations you have to determine their travel pattern in order to come up with a, a case scenario allowing you to to be more successful so we replaced the team we got several analysts from different parts of the the world and uh, this led to the results we had over the last two years where we could close four of the remaining eight fugitive cases let's kick off with one of them which is the arrest in paris in 2020 of felician kabuga Rwandan businessman accused of genocide essentially for bankrolling the anti-Tutsi media companies and for the arming and for the financing of the so-called Interahamwe Hutu militias he's in his 80s and he's uh, due to go on trial September 29th that might be before this podcast goes out might be afterwards but anyway September 29th 2022 three counts of genocide three counts of crimes against humanity now your predecessor Hassan Jallo used to say regularly because you always have to report back to the security council that Kabuga was meant to be in Kenya and I can even remember a, a documentary by a friend of mine John Allen Namu where he kind of really looked very carefully to see whether whether this particular man in a particular photograph in Kenya was was Kabuga but when did you start to shift from the kind of Kenya focus to somewhere else when i took over the residual mechanism this was indeed the main hypothesis which was very much alive among the tracking team based on information coming from different sources uh, but as i said we were never really sure if this was real information or not and we used basically similar methodologies like with with general mladic to say okay let's go back in time to the place where we are 100% sure that he has been or that he was and when i looked at this well it was 2007 when he uh, had surgery in germany under a fake identity where he was together with his son-in-law ingerabatuari who was then arrested in germany who has in the meantime been been convicted but at that time no one was aware that kabuga was with him in germany so he could leave germany before he could be arrested this was in 2007 and the working hypothesis had always been well he probably came back to africa and he was hiding in different countries and even one month before the arrest some sources were telling us he is in kenya or he's in uh, in in gabon so i thought well let's start with the situation in germany where he has been from there we looked at 
also called persons of interest, which very often are family members and other individuals. We looked at their movements, uh, financial transactions, and concluded that there was very little travel to Africa after, after that date. So our main hypothesis became, well, probably he's still, he's still in Europe. It's very possible. So I organized two occasions, meetings here in The Hague, with police officers from, from the UK, from France, from Belgium, from the Netherlands, from Germany. I included Europol and Interpol because the so-called persons of interest were living in different countries. And then we established the movement profile of all individuals based on their phone location, so the tel- cell towers in which they were locked in. And by putting together all information about the cell towers where the phones were locked in of all persons of interest, we could conclude that at every single day in one year, one of the phones of the persons of interest was locked in in a cell tower close to the place where he was finally arrested. So once we put the analysis together from all countries, so none of the individual countries could itself conclude this. It was only by putting this phone analysis together from eight different countries that we could conclude that it was very likely that he was hiding at a place near Paris with every time one person of interest being physically with him. And we shared this information with the French authorities. We could, through some uh, investigations, locate the apartment, which had been rented by a person of interest. And that's how three days before the lockdown ended, the operation took place because we absolutely wanted to have this operation taking place before the end of the lockdown because we knew that movements would be very, very much complicated. So we are, we took advantage of the lockdown somehow in order to conclude this successful operation. And I want to ask a bit about the breakthrough moment, but first I also want to say for our listeners that sometimes you can hear somebody walk around the stairs in the background. We're here at Humanity Hub and there's a lot of activity uh, because Thursday is a a busier day than Friday when we usually record. Difficult to find a place to park my bike. Exactly. Um, so you say basically when, is was that the breakthrough moment where you look at all these uh, cell phone records and you see, you know, I imagine a kind of CSI situation where you have like, I don't know, uh, safety pins and not safety pins. <laughs> Pin, pins in a map. Pins in a map or kind of situation. Probably this is all digital. Or, or And is everybody sitting around the big table together and Serge is kind of directing it all? Well, no, no. We, we have a head of tracking team and we have a few fantastic analysts from from Japan, from Singapore, from, from the Middle East, from the UK. Uh, so we have a very international team working on it. No, we really collected this information from the different information providers, the different countries I just mentioned, put them into the analytical system. And then, of course, you could see, indeed physically on the big screen, when we put all of this together, the hit in relation to this one cell tower in France, which where everything was, was leading to. Of course, it was that was the moment where we said, he must be there. It must be him. You mentioned the different police agencies, but were the Rwandans involved as well? Because they have a very big, effective genocide tracking unit of their own that where they're looking to people. I mean, are, are they also involved? In this specific operation, not because it was only related to European countries, but we work on an almost daily basis together with our uh, partners in, um, in Kigali. The Prosecutor General is um, a very dear colleague we are working intensively with. And don't forget that, I mean, we are speaking about four remaining fugitives now. Rwanda has still more than 1,200 individuals they are looking for. Half of them 
being on the African continent and the other half in different parts of the world. No, on other fugitive cases, we work uh, closely together with the Office of the Prosecutor General and his tracking team, but more in related to, to fugitives, which uh, we think are on the African continent. Looking a bit ahead to the trial, because that uh, Kabuga trial will just start or has already started when this podcast goes out. What do you really expect? His health is not great. The court can only sit for a few hours a day, a couple of days a week. Are you worried that you have another kind of Milosevic uh, situation on your hands? You know, we as, as lawyers, we all learned, learned at university, justice delayed is justice denied which I think is, is not really applicable in international justice. Sometimes, often it takes years and years before a person who was very well protected becomes vulnerable, allowing us as international justice to be, to be successful. So we really see it in, in faces. The arrest, I think, was, was a, major, a major achievement. I've been with victims' organizations before the arrest. I understood what he represents for them in terms of a responsibility for the genocide against the Tutsi. And many interlocutors from the political victims uh, and other communities told us we would never ever had expected that this arrest would still take place. So this was phase one to get him, him arrested. Uh, we adopted the, and changed the indictment to streamline the indictment, uh, to have it more focused, to have it shorter, which also was accepted by, by the judges. And we went through a long procedure over the last year in relation to fitness for trial, where we also have now decisions by the judges. Now, the next phase will be uh, the trial. We are ready uh, to start the trial at the end of this month. We have more than 100 witnesses. Uh, half of them will testify in person. The other half, uh, we already introduced written evidence in relation to their testimonies. We are ready for this trial and we are looking forward to it. So back to the fugitive tracking. Uh, you've also found two other Rwandan fugitives, Augusta Bizimana in Congo, Brazzaville, and Proteus Mpiranya, the former commander of the Presidential Guard. He was in Zimbabwe. They're both confirmed deceased. And you've got your sights on Fulgents Kayashema, one of the four remaining fugitives. I don't know if my maths is correct. Let's just check my maths. Well, is there anybody else that, that we've missed out there? Yeah, well, those are really the, the key names uh, which, are, which are there. There are still two, two or three other fugitives. But the, the, the main priority we are today working on is really Kayashima. And so this is South Africa is the issue here. And what's the story there? Well, three years ago already, we located Kaishima in, in South Africa. Uh, you have to know that he is in, has been indicted for having actively participated in an incident uh, where hundreds of women and children were hiding in, an, in a church building and where he was present when hand grenades were, were thrown into, into the, uh, the building with hundreds of women and children and elderly people being killed. And because the killings couldn't advance quickly enough. They used very heavy machinery to have the, the, the church collapsing on the, the remaining um, victims. So very, very awful case in which a number of other individuals have already been convicted in the past. So we, we located him three years ago in South Africa. We uh, got the confirmation via Interpol that he was hiding there under a fake identity. It was very, very difficult at the beginning to get cooperation from South Africa. The argument put forward was, well, he has political refugee status, and then the argument was there's no legal basis to cooperate with you. How yes, could that um, be? Because, well, I mean, you're a UN institution. Yes, of course, this was the explanation we gave to say, look, um, 
we have been set up by the UN Security Council. There's an obligation for all countries in the world to cooperate with us. And so it took one year before South Africa finally said, okay, we're willing to cooperate. We will execute the arrest warrant. But then they went to the place where he was allegedly living with his family. And surprise, surprise, he wasn't there, there anymore. It took then another year, more than a year, uh, we were asking to get at least bank information, telephone numbers, financial information about him, his refugee file. It was very complicated. And in our Security Council reports, I've really been very, very outspoken and also in the speech. Yeah, we noticed. It was so difficult for me to understand that the count of Nelson Mandela would not be supportive in arresting an individual suspected of those, those awful, massive, massive crimes. Luckily, um, this year, finally, and that's why I will not continue on the, on the negative side, let's be, be positive because we still need South Africa's cooperation. So on the more positive side, finally, in April this year, it was escalated to the level of the president of South Africa, who then gave instructions to set up Finally, a task force, a working group composed by all operational services to work with us. So my team has been there on two occasions. I should go there normally next month. And so we are cautiously optimistic that there will be better better cooperation as it started already. Is he still in South Africa or is he in the meantime in one of the neighbor countries? We, we don't know. But he's definitely our number one priority for the months to come. And when you, you look at the, the fugitives that you, you found, most seem to have false identities, they have passports, and uh, they have been on the run for, for a long time. They've got money as well. Yeah, they have the resources to be away. What kind of network supports these people? And also, I remember from the, from the former Yugoslavia, it was always the downfall when one cousin gave a, finally a phone call to somewhere. They seem to always end up being related to the family that you're, you're, you're tracking. So I'm kind of trying to figure out how is the network and how do you finally catch yeah. them? The networks are always very, very different, depending if it is a person with a military background or a political background or a business person. And you're right. At the end of the day, over the years, it's at the end the family, which is the, the, the closest, and at the end of the day, the person of interest, which lead us to, to, to an arrest. You mentioned Emperania, who was really, after Kabuga, our number one fugitive because he was also earmarked to be prosecuted at the mechanism where the remaining fugitives now, in case of arrest, will be prosecuted in, in, in Rwanda. After the genocide, he fled to, to the DRC, uh, to Cameroon. He was then fighting with the Rwandese uh, opposition together with the government in, in the DRC during the Congo Wars. And then he, in, in, in 2000, around 2002, he, he left with the, the military from Zimbabwe, who were also fighting in the DRC, he left to uh, Zimbabwe. And of course, our working hypothesis had been for a number of years that there was some protection there from certain individuals allowing him to hide in Zimbabwe under a fake identity. And it was here also, thanks to a number of searches we have done, a number of intercepts that we we could finally conclude that he, he had died and that we could find out the name under which uh, he uh, was buried and, and where. And, you know, my investigators spent a few hours on one of the uh, cemeteries where allegedly he was, and then we found even the, the grave ourselves. So, so the, the context is very, very different if you are uh, a military person. Uh, you know, you remember in relation to Mladic, for example, indicted after the genocide in Srebrenica, 95, 96, but until 2000, 
He was basically more or less freely driving around with military escorts, and the international community was not really willing to arrest him because it was considered being a risk for the very fragile peace process. So very often in the first years after being indicted, an international fugitive is relatively free in its movements, with Mladic getting standing ovations in a football stadium after indictment. And it's only over time, once the political support, the financial support is not there anymore, that we can use opportunities to, to, to arrest. Is there also an ideological tinge to these networks? I mean, are they kind of groups of genocide deniers? I mean, people who say that the genocide didn't happen there. And is that what motivates them apart from family? Well, we, we don't have really very much a link between the genocide deniers and the fugitives because the genocide deniers are very much in the public domain, making public statements, and they don't want to, to attract attention in relation to the fugitives. But of course, they share the same philosophy, the same, same denial about the crimes committed. In your speech to the UN Security Council, you said you wanted to bring all remaining Rwandan fugitives to justice in the next two years. What do you need to do that that you don't have now, apart from, I don't know, a slip with the name and address and <laughs> you can find your person here? Or maybe we should say the context is you have just been renewed for a couple of years, so you've got yes. two years to do yes. it. Of course, we, we like to, to put pressure on, on ourselves. You know, um, when I took over four years ago, I said to the Security Council, give me four years to work on the fugitives. If I'm unsuccessful, we can close the entire tracking team. So we, we put this pressure on ourselves and we have been in the situation, thanks to the team and the hard work of, of the team, we could close four of the, of the cases. So we are indeed ambitious enough to say, well, we will work on the, on the remaining ones um, in, the, in the years to come. You are right when you said that all of them have several passports. One of the problems is that those are real fake passports, if I may say. So they have been delivered based on corruption. So they've been delivered by the competent authorities of a number of countries, which means that it's absolutely impossible if you look at the document to determine if it's a real one or, or, or a fake one. So this remains a big problem. It is an issue that a number of countries, I will not, not mention, but we're in contact with um, in the African context, are for years not answering requests for assistance when we are trying to find out who has delivered this fake passport, why was it delivered. But for, for both uh, fugitives, um, Kabuga, but also in Piranha, when they were arrested, well, the identity they were using was not even on the list of the 20 um, we, we had. So um, cooperation remains uh, difficult. There are, of course, still political tensions between a number of African countries, which doesn't make it necessarily easy. So, yeah, we, we, we hope that uh, at the end of this year, when the budget for next year will be decided, I can keep my, my eight persons in the tracking team. We are confident that we will be able to close one or two cases in the next year um, as well, if we have the resources. And if countries, uh, UN member states, continue cooperating with us, uh, or even increase the quality of the cooperation with us in the years to come. What's next when you catch them, apart from going to trial? Is that then, you know, you have two more years? Do you see something beyond being the head of the mechanism? Or I'm getting often this question. So when will the mechanism close? Is it in two years? Is it in four years? Is it in six years? Well, the, the fugitive is only one part of our activities. And even if the last appeal is now ongoing. Stanisic and, and Somatovic, uh, leaders at the Serbian Intelligence Service, this appeal procedure should end next year. 
and the Kabuga trial and appeals should also hopefully not take more than the next two years or so, then there will be no other judicial activities. But there are more than 50 people serving their sentence, which have been convicted by the, by the two tribunals, where early release and other questions can still on the agenda. Uh, there's still contempt of court, uh, witness protection, there still can be um, interferences. And the reality is also that, as I said earlier, Rwanda is asking and sending us um, on a weekly basis almost requests for assistance because they are looking for more than 1,200 individuals. And we have, for the Rwanda genocide, more than 1 million pages of documents which are potentially useful for proceedings there. Uh, this is even more uh, the case uh, for the former Yugoslavia, where I will be again in, in Belgrade and in Sarajevo very soon. Well, in Sarajevo alone, there are still... Uh, several hundred investigations ongoing in relation to 3,000 individuals. And we have 10 million pages of documents in relation to the Yugoslav tribunal. So what I would say is that, well, very soon we are not anymore in the driver's seat for the cases in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. But we will have a very important support function to provide for, for years uh, to come. It's a new phase where we are, as I said, only only supporting national jurisdictions, but it remains very, very important, uh, with, of course, a much more reduced uh, team. I had 500 staff members 10 years ago. Uh, now, of course, it's less than, than 100, and it will go uh, further further down after the closure of those two last remaining cases. We always uh, end the podcast with a few specific questions. Uh, the first one is, is there something that we should have asked you that we didn't? I think we covered a lot of, lot of aspects. And, of course, the, I think the main message I want to give is to say, well, it's not over with the end of those remaining trials. Justice at the domestic level needs to continue and is even more important than, than ever. And we also ask another question. Do you have a favorite court case? Could be something you're working on now, could be something that you did as a younger man uh, prosecuting it, uh, something that you still remember or that you like to give as an anecdote? Well, I'd don't think that prosecutors have favorite cases. Uh, I would even say that we, of course, all notice that cases like Kabuga or Karadzic or Mladic are getting a lot of attention. But for the individual victim, it doesn't really matter if you are the victim of one of the very prominent perpetrators or, or not. So, so I think more often about the Mothers of Srebrenica and other victims' organizations um, I'm dealing with and uh, about the thousands of victims which are behind all those cases which are less less publicized and less, less in the public domain. And our final question that we um, always ask is, do you have any recommendations of what you've been reading or watching or listening to that you'd like to share with our audience? That's a, that's a difficult one. You mean you don't read or you I, don't have time? The last years, I did not have really a lot of time to read. I, of course, follow the news 10 times a day on many different programs. And when I'm on vacation, uh, which is relatively rare, I just try to, to read something very light, which probably is not necessarily what I would, would recommend. Well, um, have you been reading anything recently, Stephanie, just that we have something for the end? Now I have to confess that I'm still reading Philip Sand's book, which I haven't finished since the last podcast. So I'm reading about uh, Chagos and the ICJ, which is very on brand for me. And you? I'm catching up with uh, Sally Hayden's book from uh, the one that the podcast that we did on uh, Libya and the migration issue and the European Union. And it is very hard reading, 
because the stories are just so dreadful. Oh, so we're both we're both just working and reading. Thank you very much, Serge, for coming on our podcast and talking to us about the track and trace, as Janet calls it. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.